0: Hello, you tuning in to Psycomedy. It's Rafaela here from ThreadUp. ThreadUp brings exciting new changes to its services in direct response to what we learned while supporting comedians and creatives through the crisis with their mental health and including those who lost their income. Check it out at threadup.co.uk and get in touch to arrange your therapy that supports creativity.
1: Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a subject I've been studying for 25 years and a quarter of a century of exploring the fascinating way our minds work on and off stage, alongside being a stand-up for the last 10 years, has led me here today discussing the psychology of comedy as we start to round off series two of Psychomedy. 2020 was a bleak year on so many levels, COVID killing live comedy, crazy news cycles, and, everything else. But there was one glimmer of hope, Trump lost in a landslide and as corona forced us to record Psycomedy via Zoom on a positive note it opened doors to more American comics. So in celebration of Biden's win we bring you today highlights of some of the US comedians that have been guests on Psycomedy. During the summer when we were doing the Daily Dose shows one of the first US comedians we spoke to was Scott Capuro. Covid and the state of American politics featured a lot in our chats, and at one point we compared daily government briefings. Where do you get your, how does it filter down from Trump? Oh, you know
2: where we get it. Yeah,
1: (laughs) Yeah. but I mean, from from Trump, are you waiting for a local decision then? or uh... From the three-ring circus. (laughs) No, we get it
2: from from Chief Clown, and he just starts (laughs) yelling at America. I mean, some people... They they refuse to watch it, and they're just watching when when, when Fucci is on that, that short Italian guy who's the right. who's one of the uh, the career politicians around pandemics. I was just mm. also watching him from a video in two thousand and five when the h <laughs> one whatever that thing was that, that virus was spreading mm. or or about they were about they were worried it was going to spread globally. You know, he's always been around, always been worried. You know, so how this happened cause he has Trump's ear. I really, I'm not sure how America was caught with their pants down, but they, but you know, in places like Arkansas and Alabama, where they said, Oh, we didn't know that you could have symptoms or, or that you could have the disease without having symptoms. That's a game changer. You know, that's just happened a few days ago. It's, um, I think a part of the problem is it's, it, the country's too big. I mean, Trump aside, I think that I, I felt this for a long time, that the U S is too in the, in the current, economic status that, global, that the global economy provides, I feel like America's too large to, and unruly to govern, mm. especially someone as weak you know, as Trump. California always threatens to slice itself off and float into the sea. Oh. <laughs> it's been th- it's threatened, and tex- Texas has too, but California could afford it. And I wonder if this will lead to even more autonomy with the governors, to each governor taking even more power and control. Uh, yeah. That might happen, yeah. and I think I think what's happening now is is the White House's power is weakening, it's diminishing its own its own control. I mean, Jared Kushner, I read a book on the Middle East, so I'm in charge. You know, these kind of things <laughs> may make local governments alarmed, yeah. and um, and they re, and they reinvent themselves the way the way Governor Newsom in California has. I'm yeah. not sure if he's pitching himself as president or if he's he's realizing that, really, I have more powers as a governor than I do as a president. And I think the governors do.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I hear you on another podcast talking about how America can be painted in one brushstroke in terms of the stupidity of Trump. But I know it's a silly question, but I heard... We get these things from Trump. These little videos. I don't know if you've seen it today. It is one to watch, even from someone like me who doesn't want to watch these kind of things. But mm. I saw something from Trump cut together. It was something called like "I'm not a doctor." It was Trump constantly saying "I'm not a doctor" but giving giving medical advice. It's so it's so funny. It's a uh. it's a stupid question perhaps, but I'll ask it anyway. Is there, in any sense, that he's being misrepresented because? From from here, from this distance, he just looks like he's handling it so badly.
2: Yes, it's true. But, it's, I mean, it depends on who you ask. In this country, again, it's too large. And he's, his numbers are at about what they've always been. I mean, they they did spike a bit at the beginning of coronavirus, which is strange to me because it was, it was such a joke at that point, I mean, compared to international response. And now he's at about 40% nationally approval ratings. How anyone could, you know, but so much of it is people's own personal political agendas when they're responding to Trump. And, you know, I, w- I've always felt like he's a single issue candidate, which is the Supreme court. And as long as he does what he's told in terms of Supreme court appointments, people will overlook his response to the virus, I think. And they'll, they'll feel like, well, oh, I don't know. Like they think he's doing what he can. I, 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 and he's not the most terrifying one to me. It's the cabinet around him. Mm-hmm. It's the Republicans that don't step up for their constituency in either the House or the Senate. I mean, Mitch McConnell is a fucking monster, if you ask me, because he, he's he's promoting this president who's got blood on his hands. To, to, if you're a Californian, you think he's an idiot. But again, if you live in Kansas and you want abortion to be made into a, you know, a federal crime, then you love him. We still, I still live in a country where abortion is used as a political weapon. And I fear that's happening in the UK in the future too. That lunatic home secretary you have, that woman (laughs) that we have, I don't know why I'm saying I'm going back in two weeks, but that woman is just, I mean, we all know that Johnson, every word out of his mouth is a lie. Whether or not he was ever really in the hospital, who knows? I don't trust anything he says. He's like,
1: in a way, he's a he's a better educated Trump, which you know, which might be more frightening. I don't know. All stand-ups were forced to work online, and some did better than others. One American comic who blew up the internet was J. L. Kovan. He'd been slogging it on the circuit for 17 years and was just thinking how he couldn't make comedy a priority anymore when his Trump impression made him instantly famous. When we spoke, the election was about a month away, and I asked him what the future held for his Trump impression. If he wins
3: again, if he were to win re-election, which I just—I will be stunned if that happens. But obviously, stunning things can happen. I won't do it. I, I don't under I don't see a world where I can continue doing it because I will no longer see. To me, his a chance for him to be booted from office is the silver lining. The dark, you know, dark comedy requires. Uh, unless you're Anthony Jeselnik, you need some sort of like a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel for dark comedy (laughs) to feel somewhat not entirely mean and opportunistic but um, for me if he wins again it's it's the joke is over as far as I'm concerned now I will continue doing him uh, hopefully on a lesser extent, if he loses. Because yeah. I have no problem kicking him while he's down and mocking the disgrace that he is. Mm. But the, the humor will be really lost for me. I mean, if SNL wants to pay me a million dollars a year, I might have to think of that for my family. But <laughs> but other than that, which obviously that's not going to happen, I don't see how I can do that. As far as stand-up getting famous this way, I've pu- I've paid so many dues and put so much more into this than I've gotten out that however I get to exploit it at this point I do not Mm. find it compromised in other words I've been ready and I had the mindset that I'm doing four different things whether it's podcasting writing sketches impressions stand-up that I wanted one of those to blow up and then to sort of the rising tide lift all boats Mm. the boat I care about the most is stand-up but there's a reason i've diversified sort of my comedy portfolio it was the idea that yeah i can't rely on stand up alone to help my stand up career yeah and i don't feel like a famous person who's now getting booked cuz they're famous i know that might be the reason if i do get nice bookings but for me it's no no my stand up has earned its place however mm. it has to get in the door it will earn its the fans but um You know, I don't like the fact that a lot of these fans that I have now aren't, I can tell when they're not really comedy fans, when they're just sort of on Twitter because they're bored and they like uh, similar political thoughts. Like when I I joke about Jeff Epstein molesting kids or Melania being a whore, oh, oh, ha, 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 ha. If I make a joke, I made a joke about the store Lane Bryant, which is a plus-size women's Mm. store. And yeah. I said they filed for bankruptcy, and I wrote Lane Bryant has filed for Chapter 12 to 24 bankruptcy. <laughs> That's like a Jay Leno level joke. <laughs> and I got you should take this down. This yeah. is fat shaming. And I go, you get out of here because you're never. Go- I now I thank you for letting me know you'll never be at a comedy club. I don't. I cannot <laughs> have you editing my material. Person who like my last blog was ba- I think the subtitle was do the comedy police even like comedy, <laughs> you know? And just because I'm politically aligned with you, and that's the dilemma I sometimes have, is my comedy, can, stand-up-wise, can appeal to a broad range of people. And most of the time, you won't know my politics from yeah. my stand-up. But then after a show, sometimes it's some conservative guy making off-color comments because he thinks I'm like an edgy bro who hates libs and political correctness. Like, mm. I hate political correctness on stage. I'm fine with being politically correct at the <laughs> Cheesecake Factory. Why are you saying this shit to me? Versus the people who love my political content, no matter how edgy or, or crude it can get because I'm on the right side. Yeah. And then the, the tamest of jokes, they clutch their pearls. So it's a, it's a, you know, I'm just trying to build an audience big enough that then there's a, a good enough slice in the middle that can be the stand-up audience that I need and, and want.
1: Of course, we've had American stand-ups on psych comedy before COVID. In fact, the first one, Sarah Baron, was one of our very first episodes. Sarah came late to comedy after she'd moved to London and asked her why that was.
4: So I started stand-up really late. Like, I was 35 when I started. And I think I tried it for six months when I was 22 and I couldn't do it. Oh. And I just think, like, for whatever reason, I needed to be 35 and I needed to have that like more stuff to say and Mm. and a clearer sense of how to talk about it and all that um
1: what did you do between 22 and 35
4: um I waited everything everything. what didn't I do I um
1: were you in the states yeah I was in the
4: states and I was sort of ultimately a writer like I I made a living at it but it was a horrifically pathetic living Mm. um and you know what I had always wanted to do was stand up. Like I tried it, and I hadn't cracked it, and I just thought it was the coolest, best thing. But I I couldn't do it. And when I met my husband, he was like, "You're a stand up," and I was like, "Oh, don't even say that to me. That's like all I've ever wanted to be, but I can't do it."
1: So there was like a thirteen year gap between you start yeah trying so it, at it and 22, then doing it Yeah, yeah. And was it always on your mind? Or always on my mind. You thought you could do
4: that? Like so that so when I I was thirty one when I met my husband, and I was going to come to visit him in London in August. I was still living in New York. And he's like, oh, if you're here in August, do you want to go up to Edinburgh to the festival? And I was like, no, nah, I can't do that. <laughs> like, it's too depressing. It's like a bunch of people wandering around doing this thing that I've wanted to do my whole life and like can't quite right. get myself to... It was, it was like my little what cancer. Stopped, what stopped you from doing it? So basically like I turned myself into a writer. So then the sort of story I told myself was like, but I have a thing. It's not like... I was an account I wanted to be a stand-up, but I was an accountant. Like I did this thing that involved comedy and was creative. It's like someone who, you know, like some you're married and it's fine and part of you is going, It's fine. This relationship is fine. Does it have to be great? Uh. And it was, like, there, there was just this other thing. And so the fact that I was, like, working on books and writing all the time, like, that was that was what I did.
1: Interesting that your husband said you are a stand-up, and he identified that in you. What do you think he saw in you? And <sighs> do you think that do you think you are a stand-up in terms of people can be – they're stand-ups. They're, they're not writers. They're not actors. They're stand-ups, and they're a different breed to other art forms.
4: Yeah, I think that – so, so Heed, I used to, like um, – The Moth is this storytelling thing that's in London and it's like big in the States. And so when I was writing, that would just be a thing that I hosted for them once a month. So I did this performance thing once a month. The Moth Club. Yeah. Yeah. And so my husband was in New York for work and he one of his co-workers was like a Moth fan. And so they were like, what should we do when we're in New York? Oh, I, there's this podcast. There's a live show. Let's go see it. And I was hosting. And that was how he and I met. So he saw me on stage. And he was like, well, that's what, I mean, that's your thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, it's just like I do it once a month, but actually, and he was like, no, but that's, that's what. So then there was like a couple of years where I was still, I had this book I had to finish. And he was like, you should just do stand up. And so finally, 35th birthday, mm. I went and did it.
1: Another comedian who's relocated to London from the US is Maria Shahata. Maria's move to London was hard on many levels, but it did provide inspiration for her latest show. Your Show Hero, Um, it's about failed love, crippling debts, living with an angry 83-year-old. Not exactly what Maria had in mind when she left LA for the UK. Mm. So, haven't seen the show. Is this still the case? Is it uh, still living with an 83-year-old? No. Okay.
5: That was only for a few months. Okay. And I think they were looking for a reason for me to go because they wanted to move another carer in so that they can just share. So, it was 24-7 care. Okay. And I was obviously not going to do it because I have comedy and I'm I'm not a caring type. (laughs) (laughs) So... (laughs) But yeah, living living with Connie was was definitely a weird situation to be in. I moved to London because I I was engaged to a guy, so like the, I was supposed to have started a life like with a like a new like a starting a new family, you know. Mm. And I was like in a new country with a with a fiance, and I was like gonna start my my adult life, <laughs> essentially, and that didn't happen. And then I was flung right back into this this um, living in precarious situations like I did throughout my 20s, again.
1: Mm. God, that must have been a difficult time then, breaking up with my fiance and moving in with someone you don't know.
5: I kind of, I feel like I tend to get, there's something about me that doesn't like, maybe I don't like ruts or certainty or something, so it should have been a difficult time but there's something very exciting about changing it up. Mm. Like I've moved, I've lived in, in. like I'm from Ohio. I lived in New York for four years. I was in LA for seven years. I've been here for four years in London. I've I've lived in so many different apartments. Uh, I don't know what that is about me. Like a friend sort of diagnosed me as bipolar, like a mild form of it, but I, I, I don't see that. But like there's something about me that really super loves changing I get very excited about changing my life I don't know what I'm saying but I just maybe I just no, I'm I, I am afraid of a rut
1: are you searching for that certainty searching for that permanence and then as soon as you have it you're scared by it and one out is that what you're saying
5: kind of like not I don't know if it's scared I just I just I can't help myself but like to change it's yeah. like you know the movie Chocolat and like So, so that woman kept moving around towns and bringing her daughter with her Uh, and she was sort of like a a gypsy in that way, uh, but wasn't actually a gypsy, but like, um, it was like the winds of change were what moved her and, uh, I have to change. I I like, but I'm getting to the point, like, like the older I get, the more I sort of want that, um, I, uh, I, I would like a little more normalcy, like a little more, um, um, routine in my life so that I can. I I very much like to plan and figure out what I'm doing. And it's hard to do when you're running around all over the place all the time. Mm. Like even with traveling with comedy, it's hard to get into a gym routine or an eating routine or like prepping a lunch for the week because I don't know where I'll be at any given time. I don't have any uh, like normal pattern.
1: Mm. That's what I'm saying. There seems to be a push and pull and you're looking for that normal pattern. But then when you get into that normal pattern, maybe you'll be... Bored of it.
5: Yeah, I'll be bored of it,
1: mm.
5: maybe. So What? what is that, Doc, what is that about me? <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, does this have anything to do with stand-up at all? I mean, we talked with a few of the comedians I've talked to on this, like Kate Barron. Um, she said getting into a, quote, normal relationship, settling down, if she smells that she's about to do that then she runs from it. She wants that change because at the back of her mind or at the front of her mind, stand-up is the most important thing on her mind. So when she gets into that settled situation, she thinks, well, am I going to turn out like all those other comedians that settled down and then gave up on their career? Have you ever thought about that, that stand-up has a part to play in? Because you've been doing stand-up from a a very young age and kind of all, all your adult life. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, think, do you think stand-up has any part to play in that in terms of the importance that you place on it?
5: No. <laughs> I've never... I, I have a very love-hate relationship with stand-up, so I've never, like, placed it, like, as a priority. And I, I mean, obviously, like, I wouldn't want to be with somebody who stopped me from doing stand-up or if I was just in such, like, domestic bliss, I didn't want to do it anymore. But mm. I never really, like, thought as a of a relationship as a threat to my stand-up career. Right. But I do... I think maybe because I have such overbearing uh, parents, like my, my father in particular is very, like, overprotective, that I, I, I feel trapped if, if I feel like I'm in a situation that I have to, any situation where I feel obliged for like, even when I have an agent, it's sort of like, oh, it's too much. Like, I feel like I have to answer to them or something, and I'm very, like, I'm very much a free spirit, so I just need to know that I can be free.
1: One thing everyone knows is all Americans look exactly the same. (laughs) Well, Alex Edelman and his brother look more like each other than most. In fact, they could be twins. We are not identical twins. That is a joke that I have done on
6: Conan that (laughs) took a life of its own. Okay. uh, Okay. So you know, so so Gary Gullman is one of my favorite comedians. Uh, I used to do a joke. I say my brother and I look like twins. And one day he's like, "You guys are twins." And I'm like, "What?" He's like, "In the joke, you're twins." He's like, yeah, "Just yeah. say you're twins." He's yeah, like, you, right. "No one yeah. cares." He's like, "No one gives, no one gives a crap." Uh, and so I was like, "Yeah, I guess." So I I started saying we're twins, and I feel bad because they did the joke on TV, and I started getting letters from identical twins, and I had to be like. I am not an identical twin and people feel betrayed. It's like, it's like a whole, you know, people, people would send me letters about how they felt like oppressed as an identical twin. And I was like, that doesn't feel like a group. I'm like that's a group where what's the oppression? A cop pulls you over. Cause he thinks he's seeing double. like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the, what the real, uh, <laughs> the real victim is but yeah aj's a great aj's great yeah and, uh, my youngest brother austin uh is a is a senior at mit and he's a really uh interesting funny lovely dude with a bunch of life experience yeah i'm the biggest loser in my family
1: <laughs> not at all not at all um yeah from a from a distance couple of yeah a couple of feet away you could be you could be identical twins and it's like you, you, you could be a twin that's like he's he's beefed up a bit and um you know you've been a comedian. It's fine. I didn't realize you what were lying. Your... So you, you you lie about being a Jew as well, don't you? So yes. Uh...
6: Yes, I'm not a I'm not a Jew. I'm actually <laughs> uh, I'm actually of the Bahai faith, <laughs> and uh, I don't know anything about the Bahai faith. So I should have picked if I really wanted to sustain a bit here. I, I should probably should have picked uh, a religion that I know something about. <laughs> but uh, I yeah. really yeah I love uh, I love I love my my family like nice. every like most people. But yes. uh, but yeah, they do they do sort of put me put me to shame.
1: Can you put them on actually? Can you p- put your brother on, please? So. Yeah, I'll just get him from <laughs> uh, the other room.
6: No, he's in New Haven, Connecticut right now. He's that's where right. he's quarantined. So he's pushing so he pushing
1: hundred kg, no doubt.
6: <laughs> you know, he really is. He's a like he's a tough guy. He's a tough yeah. guy and an, impre- and an impressive guy. And sometimes I watch him. Go, you know, I see the way he's uh, built because he's such a he's such a um, a jock. Yeah. And I feel bad because we do look so similar. I feel like it's the universe going like, here's how you could have looked.
1: <laughs> when I spoke to Erica Rhodes, she was in L.A. after quarantining in Florida for a month. But despite the difficulties she lived through, when I spoke to her, she was about to make a return to live comedy. And you're back on stage next week, am I right? In um... Yes! In Minneapolis.
7: Yeah. Amazing. So excited. Yeah.
1: So these are your first gigs back after after the months away.
7: Yep, three months not on stage. I don't know. I don't know if I'll remember how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) How do I hold the mic? I don't know.
1: you can do courses on that how to hold a mic you know i don't know whether you've ever seen those courses but you know beginner stand-up courses they tell oh, you yeah
7: how... yeah
1: yeah just a, just a refresh how to um to put the put the wire around you know is that like a socially distanced audience I, I hate that phrase i don't know why i have just used it i, I hate distance.
7: that phrase too i'm like <laughs> people to me it's always like a don't worry we're being good yeah totally don't worry, yeah. we're yeah. behaving
3: yeah, you know, it's yeah. like
7: such a virtue signal to be like, we went on a social <laughs> distance lunch. Like, you had, <laughs> yeah. lunch. you had lunch. Just say you had lunch. Like,
1: oh we're God, all yeah. social
7: distancing. Saying,
1: you know? I need to find another phrase for audiences far apart.
7: Why yeah, why don't you just say, is it a seat? Are the seats going to be fire? far apart? Yeah, yeah, they'll be scattered, I think, and, and uh, limited capacity. So, 75 yeah. people. And yeah, then nice. we're going to. Zoom the show so you can watch from home if you want to.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. You're right, though. Virtually so many people put out on uh, Facebook or whatever, went for a socially distanced picnic. I'm like, oh, F- You
7: get it. You're a good person. Fuck you're off. not a murderer. Yeah. You
1: get it. <laughs> it's like, what are you don't hiding? I, what are you hiding?
7: That's what? what I find with a lot of, of a lot of posts, where if people seem too good, you're like, what is yeah. wrong with you? What are you... Yeah. Who have you What killed? are you really up to?
5: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you must be excited about this gig anyway. Are you coming back with anything like brand new, anything you've been writing during lockdown? Or is that a bit risky?
7: Yeah, I mean, I am definitely trying to come up with new stuff. Um, but it's hard because most of it I've tried on Zoom and I don't know if it will translate to the stage yet. And I also don't want to, I don't want to be hacky where I just do, you know, it's like I've heard 5 million comics do mask jokes now. So I think (laughs) I'll avoid the mask jokes. Yeah. (laughs) But I I I think I have some personal, I have some personal stuff I think I I can talk about with the experience.
1: What kind Um, of stuff? Can you give us any tidbits?
7: Well, this is something I'm trying to work out, but I don't, I don't have a joke for it yet. It's more Mm. of just thought about how nobody knows anything you know like i don't think anybody really knows anything like when people are like oh well the scientists say i'm like the scientists fail for a living that's their job to fail right and same with doctors like doctors don't know anything like just because someone has a phd doesn't mean they know (laughs) that much right so it's like i've gone to my doctor with symptoms of things and we were both googling our symptoms at the same time oh, yeah, I was like,
1: absolutely that's what they do now with me yeah
7: like yeah. so it's like there's 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 some weird thing where you think because somebody's called a doctor or called a scientist that they necessarily know what the hell they're talking about but nobody knows anything
1: they don't. and yeah i went to the yeah. i went to the doctor with my son well i think i mentioned this the other day and um yeah with a rat he had a rash he's like 11 years old he had a rash and the it, the the doctor just brought up pictures of rashes on google and went was yes. like comparing them it Was like i think it's that one i'm like well i could do that
7: yes yeah that's the whole thing where it's like i mean if you ever gotten a massage where you're like they really know what they're doing <laughs> like any time i get a yeah. massage i'm like maybe 10 minutes out of the whole massage they'll get the right spot <laughs> the rest of the time you're like what the hell are you doing why are you touching my thigh like that
1: like as I said, the new way we had to record psychomedy Comedy since March gave us the chance to go international. And it was great to get comedy legend Al Lubel on the show, even though he was just down the road in south-east London. Few comedians have had showbiz highs appearing on Letterman, Leno and Carson, and the relative showbiz lows of driving a cab to earn a living like he has. So how did being a Lyft driver affect his mental health? Because I went
0: completely broke in L.A. Uh, I was on food stamps. And uh, I was on, uh, what do you call it? welfare? Mm. And then fi- that for like two months on welfare, and that actually, and that constant being completely broke, mm. that awakened me. Finally, I was away. I always looked for ways to like survive and not have to work, like because mm. I wasn't getting comedy work out there. So mm. I was having a tantrum, kind of. I wasn't getting, and I was getting just enough to barely survive. And then I wasn't getting enough to survive. So I kind of had a tantrum well, I'm not going to get a job. And I'm not, if I can't be a comedian, I'm still not going to get a job. And so I was depressed and I was down to like 10 bucks. I had 10 bucks left. And sometimes I had no dollars and I had to go to sleep hungry, you know, mm. but it, I had to learn that I had to feel the pain of that. So mm. I, then it finally awakened me to clean my car. And I shouldn't say clean my car it was a mess. I did have a car. I was living at a friend's house and the friend was nice enough to let me stay without paying rent. Finally, I got my shit together. I didn't think I could handle driving Lyft. I thought that would have been too hard, too confusing. and I'm getting lost on my own a lot. You know, I'm gonna drive people, but I was driven. I had wordplay, I was driven to it, whatever. But I was driven, (laughs) I finally started doing it and uh, that gave me some self-esteem. Like I couldn't believe it and I got Mm. self-esteem from it. Like I thought, oh, wait a minute, I'm a comedian and I'm pretty damn good, I shouldn't have to be doing this. but. the truth was i should have to be doing it because uh i had to get some self-esteem from it i, I was getting self-esteem from comedy but mm. i wasn't getting enough work and uh did you, get,
1: did you get more self-esteem from the from the driving than the comedy because obviously comedy is very up and down
0: for a while for the, yeah it was such a new thing the lift thing that i was amazed i was able to do it mm. and it that's was like a,
1: like an uber an uber service yeah it's
0: like yeah. uber same yeah. thing and i was amazed i was actually to be able to get through it because it's not easy it's like at first the novelty of it helped me get through it because Mm. i would drive like eight hour shift at night you know maybe seven hours i start like eight Mm. in the evening and go to like three four in the morning Mm. and the time flies when you're doing it a lot because you kind of when you especially when you're getting work you know when you're getting the calls yeah but uh the novelty the excitement the wow i'm doing this and getting to meet the real people of la not just the fellow actors and comedians at whole foods but uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know the real people that was like eye-opening like it was exciting You know? yeah and also i felt like a public servant in a way i'm doing a service i actually mm-hmm. felt connected to humanity yeah but That's after it. like uh, four months of it it got t- very exhausting and tiring and hard right and so, luckily i got enough money together to get to edinburgh you know? yeah
6: and so, uh,
1: Well, that's so interesting from a psychological perspective as a comedian that I think probably a lot of comedians would struggle. I mean, you had massive success just before that. You were on Letterman loads of times. You were on Jay Leno loads of times. You were on Johnny Carson, weren't you? And you you won that massive comedy competition. And then I think a lot of comedians, even with far less success than that, um, if they started driving a cab, they'd be like, this would be totally damaging to me psychologically. I need to be on stage, but it seems like to you, it was kind of the
0: part that was damaging, especially. I remember I picked up some people at the comedy store. My biggest
1: fear was oh. picking
0: up the <laughs> at the comedy store. Okay, yeah, but I knew well. <laughs> I <was>
1: like, <laughs> you needed uh, to avoid those bookings, Al. Geez, right. don't, don't, don't pick up anyone from the comedy store. Right now that I think about it, I'm not so sure.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't say who the name of the person was, but it would no. say a location, and okay. I, yeah, I did pick up at the comedy store, and it really depressed me because, mm. uh, luckily, it wasn't a comedian. I did once pick up a comedian, a big. Be- more of a, a guy that didn't even know. So that didn't bother me. Not at the comedy store, somewhere else. But mm. these people weren't comedians. They turned out to be, I heard them, three people, I heard them in the back of my car talking about the comedy business. And yes. I thought they were just audience. They were talking about the show. I can't remember the comedian's name that they really liked at the show. Mm. But uh, then they were. I discovered they were agents. I heard that they were agents. They were talking about me. And in fact, one of them was representing, I don't want to mention names because I'm kind of attack them in the story. Mm.
5: So if I mention who they were representing.
0: <laughs> People would know maybe who the agent was, and so yeah, uh, yeah. I don't want to get sued by areas. Plus an
1: agent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's going to keep you busy for the next year if nothing else. Right. I hope they can't
0: figure out if it's them now from
1: this. I haven't heard the story yet. Tell I'm me afraid, this.
0: I'm afraid to tell it. Can
1: I tell? So did Al tell the story? Well, listen back to his episode to find out. And while you're at it, catch up with all the episodes in season one, season two and the Daily Dose episodes over Christmas, why don't you? That was our show for today. Join us again next week for more Psycomedy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify UK or wherever you get your podcast. If you liked it, please give us a five-star review. It helps other people to find us and only psychopaths leave three-star reviews. Psycomedy was written and presented by me, Nathan casty BS Psychology, produced and edited by Mike Hansen, BA English for Pop People Productions, theme music by Mike as well. And if you'd like to support the podcast for £5 a month and get loads of bonus uncut video and more, please go to patreon.com slash nathancassidy. Follow us on social media at podpeopleuk, at psycomedypod, at Nathan Cassidy. Lots of love, and see you again next week.